Well, this morning we continue in the series we started uh, last Sunday entitled Your Place in His Story. What we're looking at is the story of the Bible, kind of a big picture perspective uh, in just four simple acts. And uh, last Sunday we started that. How many of you like a good story, by the way? Any of you like, a, like good stories? You probably remember maybe somebody in your life who was a really, really good storyteller. Uh, for me, as I began to think about that this week, I thought about my uncle. He's passed away now, but his name was Phil. And uh, he and my aunt lived in Stone Mountain, and uh, we'd go to their house every year. And he was just one of those like master storytellers. He was one of those kind of guys that uh, maybe you have an uncle like that or a grandparent or somebody that you know that uh, just always had a story. And the stories were always captivating and just kind of drew you in. And uh, I, I remember that he, uh, he would tell us a story of when he was a kid living in the Stone Mountain area and was actually on Stone Mountain, the big granite Stone Mountain, and uh, with some of his friends. And he got lost up there one time as a kid. This is way back. And uh, got stuck in a cave or something up in that area where the trees and stuff were. And they ended up having to send in rescue people after him. And if I remember right, he used to actually keep the, the article in the paper in his wallet. And he would show it to us when we were kids. And, and, uh, and so to prove a point of how stories are engaging, I, I chose to tell a story, right, about my Uncle Phil. And so stories, we, we love them. They're, they're captivating. They're, they're inspiring, right? There, there's a reason that when you look at the ratings for television every week, it's a bunch of sitcoms, right, that rate higher than all the documentaries because the documentaries are just filled with fact, 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 but the sitcoms tell a story. It's what brings you back the next week. It's what makes you carve out Thursday nights at 8.30 for whatever network, right? Because you want to see the next part of the story of whatever show it is that you want to watch. And so stories are engaging. Jesus was the master storyteller. He would tell stories like nobody's business. And he would often just sort of roll into those stories, spiritual truths. We call those parables today. And whenever he would be sitting in front of a group of people, it was not uncommon for him to just roll into a story. And some of those obviously are very famous today, right? The prodigal son, the good Samaritan, probably two of the most famous. Those were stories that Jesus told that, that impacted people where they were, that drew them in and taught them something about themselves and taught them something about God. Well, when we look at the Bible, right, this is a big book. There's 66 little books that make this into one one big book we call the Bible, and this book is full of stories. Every single one of them are true, but what we don't want to miss is the fact that there is one overarching big story that goes within the pages of this book, and that story can be told over centuries, or it can be summarized and told in a matter of minutes, and what we're doing in the series is just pulling the big story together in what we'll call four different acts right? Treating this almost like a play. Right? Every play has act one, act two, act three, act four, you know, those kind of things. We're looking at these as four separate acts or scenes in the story of the Bible. Last Sunday, we started with act one. We called that creation, right? And one of the things, I won't rehash that whole message. I believe it's on our website, but the basic uh, takeaway from that message from last Sunday is that the creation, act one part of our story, applies to every single one of us, right? We're not products of evolution. We're not products of spontaneous generation. We are products of the creative act of God, a God who has revealed himself through his word, through his creation, through his son, and it's the creative act of that God that's explained in Scripture that led to us being here today, right? We're not here by chance. We are here by God's intent. We're here by God's will. And he created for six straight days. Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that. And on day six, he created mankind, Adam and Eve, and then ultimately everyone else who would come into existence, you and me included. And so what we, what we pulled out of that was that your life, because... 
you're created in God's image, and because you bear the image of God, your life has immense value, and your life has immense uh, purpose, right? That, that, that it's not as though you're here by chance, that God has you here for a reason. God has you here for a purpose, and that life is only going to be understood when you have a relationship with Him as your Creator. So Act 1 applies to every one of us here, creation. You are here by the creative act of the God who made you. And there's only one of him, and we read of him all through the pages of Scripture. Well, today we want to build on the story, and we want to add to that story. And, and, and that next step is going to be Act 2. And today what we look at, right on the heels of Genesis 1 and 2, we're going to find in Genesis chapter 3, Act 2, the fall. Just as Act 1 creation applies to every single one of us in the story that God is writing Act 2 applies to every single one of us as well. We read of Act 2, the fall, all throughout Scripture. In fact, it's the effects of the fall, right? It's the effects of sin that largely speak to the remainder of this book called the Bible. For me, Genesis 1 and 2 comes in four pages, right? So this part, right, the skinny part, would be before the fall. Everything else is the outflow of what happened when man fell and our relationship with God was broken. It's got, the rest of this story is going to be God's response to that. It's going to be man dealing with the effects of that. It's going to be God coming to us in the midst of our sin. The rest of the story, hinge, in a lot of ways, is in response to this hinge called the fall. And we read of it here in Genesis chapter 3. So let me give just a tiny bit more of the backstory. So God created Adam and Eve, right? He placed them in the middle of the garden, or in the Garden of Eden, ultimately. And there'd be a tree there in the midst of the garden that God would say not to eat of, specifically. And we're going to get to that in just a second. But when God created Adam and Eve, you can imagine what it must have been like for those early days. Now, we don't know how long the time period was between the close of Genesis 1, when God created and called everything good, in the beginning of chapter 3, when Adam and Eve would finally sin. We don't know if it was days, months, weeks, years. We don't know how long that time was before Adam and Eve ultimately sinned. We have no idea. The Bible doesn't tell us what that gap was, so to speak. What we do know, however, was that there had to have been a period of time when Adam and Eve walked with God. Just kind of let your mind go through that for a moment. What that must have been like. I mean, after all, these two people were created directly by God himself. I mean, like, bing, eyes open. Hey, there's God. This is why we're here, right? And so their fellowship with God would have been incredibly close. I mean, closer than anything you've ever experienced. They lived in a place of perfection. They themselves were perfect. God was there. Based on what we're going to read in a moment in Genesis 3, we can assume that they literally walked with God every day, right? They spent time with him. It was unbroken fellowship. Can you imagine the joy that was in their lives? There was no stress. There, was, there were no uh, difficulties in life. There was no sickness to deal with. The things that weigh you down and that just kind of put you over the edge, none of those were issues for them in the garden in the very early days. That was, day, that, that was life as they knew it, day after day after day. They walked with God, and they walked with God closely, and they walked with God deeply. But what we find here in Genesis 3 is the entrance of a new character into this true story. And in Genesis chapter 3, what we're going to call Act 2, the fall, we find that the enemy himself appears. And you can hear almost, if this was, a, if this was a, a, a movie, you can hear the music begin to change. You can see the mood and the scene begin to change. It's getting a little darker now. The, the, the music is a little more ominous. 
Because Act 2, in a lot of ways, ultimately is going to change everything. So let's jump in. Genesis chapter 3, everything I'm about to read is recorded just as it happened. Everything I'm about to read is completely true, trustworthy. So let's begin. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, looking at Act 2 in the story, God's story, the fall. Genesis 3, verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Let me just pause there. This is the entrance in the story, at least chronologically, of one that would later be identified in the Bible as Satan, our enemy, the devil. Not a myth, not a figurative label, right? This would have been a real entity who still lives today, entering into the story here early on in Genesis chapter 3. Now, the Bible here at this place doesn't tell us some of the backstory. So let me try to piece together a little bit of what, what, what would have had to have happened. Isaiah 14 talks about Satan, and it talks about his fall from heaven. And so what likely has happened here, if you can kind of plug this in if you look in your scriptures, at the end of chapter 1 in Genesis, verse 31, you see that God's creative work is done. He created for six days. He rests on the seventh. And ultimately, he looks at everything he had created, and he said it was very good. Well, between the end of chapter 1... And kind of this event that we see now in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, when the serpent shows up, the, the devil himself, what has happened, Isaiah has unfolded in chapter 14 in Isaiah, and, and what has happened is that the enemy, Satan, as a created being that God would have created as an angelic being, has fallen from, fe from fellowship with God. He would have risen up against God. He would have rebelled against God out of pride. He would have sought to take the position of authority that only God as creator can hold. And ultimately, as a result of that, God would have applied his authority. And as we can read in Isaiah 14, he would have put him and a certain other number of angelic followers also out of heaven. The Bible doesn't tell us where on the timeline this happened. It doesn't give us the second month or six months in. It doesn't tell us exactly where that was. Undoubtedly, obviously, this would have happened before this event in Genesis chapter 3 because here comes the devil, and he's alive, and he's working his work, right? He's already fallen from God's fellowship. He's already been put out of heaven as a result of his own sin and his own rebellion and his own pride, and now he is looking to extend the damage to God's crowning creation, mankind himself. And so he shows up on the scene here in the garden, in the presence of Adam and Eve, and he comes to the woman first, and he says, indeed, has God said, you can almost hear him saying, has God really, really said, are you sure about this, Eve? Has God, I mean, let me get this straight, has God really told you not to eat? And then he twists it a little bit, from any tree in the midst of the garden, God never said you couldn't eat from any tree. He said you could eat from any tree you want except one specific tree that was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said that tree you cannot eat from. So here comes the enemy, and he's now beginning to cast doubt on God's word, on God's command. He still does the same thing today. Has God really said, come on, are you serious? And then he also even twists the very command that God had put out there to begin with. Verse 2 and verse 3. So the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, 
But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. From the tree that's in the middle of the garden, Eve is correct. God had put this tree, let's assume for a moment, let's just say this table is somewhat like that tree. The tree is in the middle of the garden. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us why God put it there. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly why he told them you can't eat from it, right? It sounds a little bit benign to some degree. I mean, what's the big deal? I mean, you got all these other trees you can eat from. What's up with this tree? You know, what, what, what's the issue? I mean, why can't we eat from it? Here's what I think. God doesn't answer that question exactly as to why he told them that one tree they couldn't eat from. Here's what I think may be at play. You can correct me after if you want or disagree. Here's what I think. I think that the tree that was in the middle of the garden was a visual reminder there is a God who creates, and there is man who is created. And every time Adam and Eve would wander through that portion of the garden, they would see that tree in the middle of the garden, and it wouldn't be about the tree, and it wouldn't be about the fruit. It would be about the reminder to them that they exist under the authority of a God who had created them. That they were here because of God alone, and they knew exactly who he was. But, Adam and Eve, just be careful because it's already happened once in creation when the enemy resisted and rebelled. Just keep in mind, and this tree will help you remember, God could be saying, I'm the one in charge, I'm the one who calls the shots, and I'm the one in whom life is found. And I think every time they walk through that part of the garden, they'd see that tree, they would remember that this was somewhat of a visual, this was a, a visual reminder that God was real, they were not him, they were dependent on him as their creator, and he held all the authority in, the, in existence. And so Eve, to some degree, corrects the enemy. He says, the tree, she says, the tree that's in the middle of the garden, God said, you shall not eat from it or touch it. Here's the consequence, or you will, what, die. Let me just pause here for a moment and, and roll out a really, really hard reminder. This, we can't afford to lose sight of this. A lot of times we do. We kind of lower the bar, lower the bar, lower the bar. Hey, I'm going to church. You know, I'm lower the bar. I'm lower the, hey, I read my Bible today. Let me just lower the bar a little bit. Surely God's pleased with this little bit I'm doing in my walk with him, right? Lower the bar. Listen, God, by virtue of being your creator, my creator, has the right anytime he wants to command you and me to do anything he desires. Anything he wants. Anytime he wants it. He holds the right, the reign, and every bit of the authority to command you and me to do anything he well pleases whenever he desires. That's the authority he holds. Oh, but God, I thought you wanted me to be happy. No, 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 no. Happiness comes when you understand that I first called you to be holy. God holds the authority, every bit of it. We can't lower that bar to the nth degree at all. God is in complete authority. This tree reminded Adam and Eve who held the authority. Verse 4, the story continues. So the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. This is a lie. God had already told them 
that in the day in which you eat of this tree, the fruit of this tree that I have already said is off limits because I'm God and I hold all the authority and I created you and you're only here because of me in the first place, the day in which you step over the boundary that I have created because you created are not the boundary maker, I, creator, am the boundary maker, the day in which you step over that boundary and eat of the fruit of this tree, that's the day you're going to die. And the enemy comes along and he looks Eve, the very first person God had created, right square in the eye and he says, you, are you kidding me? You're surely not going to die. And without saying it, he subtly was saying, this creator that you're so in love with is selling you a bill of goods, and you cannot trust him. Did he really say this? Can you really trust him? And you are not going to die the way he said you're going to if you step over this boundary and disobey. You can't trust him, is what the enemy is saying. And listen, he does the same exact thing still today. He is still pushing his lies. He is still pushing his agenda. Jesus knew exactly what the enemy was about. Look, look at what it says. You don't have to turn there for the sake of time. John 8, 44. Jesus is going toe-to-toe during his ministry here in John 8. And he's going toe-to-toe with a lot of religious people who rejected him as the Messiah. So they had this kind of a religious outward covering, so to speak, they thought was enough, but they rejected Jesus, ultimately crucified him, right? They rejected Jesus as God. Look at what Jesus would say about them here in John eight forty four. He says to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. <laughs> this is a great way to rent friends and influence people, right? The next time you go to your little business meeting at work, just say that to your boss, see how that goes, all right? So you are of your father, the devil, Jesus says, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer. He's speaking of Satan here. He was a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. It started here in the garden and it still carries itself out still every single day in virtually every single person's life where he is rolling plan B, uh, uh, crafted in a lie, to try to draw and entice and to pull you away from what God desires in your life. He's still selling the same old bill of goods. There is nothing wrong with bending the rules. Hey, come on, he says. Do you seriously think that God expects you for decades to be faithful to the one, are you kidding me, to the one person that you're married to? Have you looked at other cultures? Have you looked at your own nation? Have you looked at your friends around you? Are you serious? God expects you to be faithful to one person for your whole entire decades-long marriage? Are you kidding me, he says? purity. He says, don't even get me started on purity. You see the boundaries that all your friends are stepping over in the workplace, and they don't have ethical boundaries. You look at the, 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 your friends on your campuses, they don't have any more uh, moral boundaries. Are, are you kidding me? You see how much fun they're having? They're living in huge homes because they move the lines of ethical purity. They, they, they seem to be so happy they've got all the friends because they stepped over that line of moral purity. Are you kidding me? You're going to try to live pure in this world? Have you looked at this world in which you live? You can't do it. God doesn't even expect it, he says. And he lies. Love your neighbor as yourself? <laughs> he whispers in your ear. You know what your neighbor does? He cuts one whole foot over into your property when he cuts his grass. You know why he does that? He thinks it's his yard. 
can't trust him. You can't love him. You know what? Remember your cat that died four years ago? I bet it was your neighbor. You can't love him. You can't love your neighbor. Are you kidding me? And he rolls these lies little by little. And we miss it. We're looking for the red jumpsuit and the pointy ears and the pitchfork. We miss it. And he sells another bill of goods as he pitches another lie, just like he did in the Garden of Eden as he works his craft. Verse 5. This is the enemy speaking still to Eve. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, the day you eat from this tree in the middle of the garden, the day you eat from this tree where your God, your creator told you that when you do it, you're going to die. He, you're not going to die. That God knows. He knows this. He, he is aware of this already. He's been holding this from you. God himself knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes are going to be boom, opened. <laughs> and you're going to be just like him. You know what? The enemy told a little bit of truth there, didn't he? But as is always the case, it wasn't the full truth. It was enough to deceive and to cover the lie. You will be just like God, knowing good and evil. There is a vast difference between the patient who has that incurable disease and the one or two or handful of physicians in the world who know how to manage that disease. The one is a patient who is dying from it, and the other is a physician who knows how to treat it. They both know the same disease, but they know it from vastly different perspectives. God knows good and evil. He knows evil because he is the one who ultimately would die to remedy it for those who trust Jesus. Adam and Eve were about to learn evil as the patient who is going to die from it. But there's something else going on here under the surface that's interesting. And this is the takeaway that I want you to jot down this morning and every time temptation comes across our path, I hope we can train ourselves to just think through this simple statement. And the statement is this, that sin is a costly, costly search for what you already possess in Christ. That doesn't apply to everybody here, only those that have given your lives to Jesus. But if you've given your life to Christ and you've trusted him for forgiveness and for salvation and you're walking with him in relationship, for you, sin is a costly search every single time. It's a costly search for what you already possess in Christ. Here's the intricacy of this particular verse. Let's go back again to verse 5. Here's what Satan says. For God knows, Adam and Eve, that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You're going to be like him. He didn't say you're going to be God. He said, you're going to be like God. Here's what Adam and Eve should have said to him, sent him packing on that very moment. Here's what they should have said, right? Easy for us to say. We don't even do this ourselves. Here's what they should have said in hindsight. They should have said, oh, serpent, <laughs> oh, devil, what you don't understand is we are already like God. Genesis 1:27. in his image, he created them, male and female, he created them. They already bore the image of God. They were already like God. No they were not God, 
No, they are not. The word, they were not infinite and eternal. They were created at a point in time by their Creator. But still, by virtue of God's intent and God's will, when He created them, the Bible says He created them in His image. They already possessed the image of God. They were already created in the image of their Creator. And when the enemy comes along and says, hey, just step over this boundary, commit this sin, eat this fruit, disobey in this area, and you're going to be just like Him, they were already like Him. Every time we sin, man, I'm telling you, starting from up here on this platform to the back row and all over this world that God has made, every time we sin, if we can just boil it down to say, why did I do that? Why did I just do, do what I just did? Why did I bend the rules? Why did I step over the boundary? Why did I do what I wanted instead of what God wanted? Every single time, if we just think it through after the fact, what we'll find is we were looking for something that God has already given us in Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Look at what it says on the overhead. Paul writes hundreds of years later. He says, For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, in Christ, you have been made complete. <laughs> there is nothing lacking, man. He says, You are complete in Christ. There's not this one little missing ingredient that you got to go step over the boundary to go looking for. You are already, Paul says, complete if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter, uh, chapter 2, look at what it says here, next, next, or chapter 1, look at the next slide, verse 7, in him, Adam quoted this a while ago, in him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, we have been redeemed, we have been bought back out of slavery to sin at the price of Jesus' own blood, we have been redeemed through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We have everything that we need spiritually. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You, a bearer of the image of God by virtue of being created by God and knowing him through Jesus, you, the Bible says, are his very own workmanship. But there's not another one like you in this whole world. Go to Cuba, go to the Philippines, go to Canada, go to Southeast Asia, go anywhere you want. There's not anyone else like you in this whole world. And he created you by his design, by his creative intent, by his power. And he died for you to redeem you so that through your life, through your life in Christ, you can know your value and you can, can know your purpose and you can know him in life. I mean, there is nothing that is lacking He's given us everything ultimately that we need. John 3, 16. But you're deeply loved for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only unique son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Put your name there. For God so loved whatever your name is. You. You're deeply loved. You don't have to step over some boundary to earn somebody else's love. And if anybody ever tells you, students, if anybody ever tells you, you got to do this or I'm not going to love you, send them packing and say, that doesn't even matter because I'm already deeply loved by the God who made me. That's what the Bible says. This is the truth of Scripture. We already have all of this ultimately in Christ. Psalm chapter 23, verse 1. I just did a series on Psalm 23, the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Listen, this is so true. If you don't have it, you must not need it, right? If you have a relationship with Jesus and you don't have it, you must not need it. I don't have a house in the mountains. Apparently, I don't need one, all right? Because what God's already given me is just fine. 
What you don't have, apparently you don't need. Why? Because God has already promised himself at the expense of his own character that if he doesn't provide for you as you walk with him and know him through Jesus, if he doesn't provide for you as a shepherd providing for the needs right, of, the, uh, of his flock, if he doesn't provide for you, then apparently you don't need it because he's already promised to give you what you need. Delight yourself in the Lord, Psalm 37, verse 4 says. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's not a big cha-ching. If I just get happy in Jesus, then I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to hit the lottery and have all this good stuff. No. Delight yourself in the Lord, and what often happens, I can be exhibit A to this, because I never expected to go into ministry, didn't even want to necessarily as a vocation. But when we delight ourselves in the Lord, what often happens is God changes the desires of our heart to match up with what his desires are for us. It's about him, <laughs> not us. And Adam and Eve in the garden that day had everything. Everything. And the enemy comes along with a lie. A lie that is built on luring them to step over God's command and boundary and truth. To go after something, you'll be just like God, that they already had. Every temptation he brings your way is a temptation for something that you don't ultimately need or that has already been fulfilled in Jesus. Verse 6 and verse 7. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, right? Where's Adam in all this? He's right there watching it all unfold. Guys, you can't blame Eve. <laughs> when I get to heaven, I'm going to talk to Eve, by golly. I'm gonna... Adam was right there with her. He ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Everything changed. Verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Remember what this probably used to be like. And the man and his wife, can you believe this, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The very God who had created them, they're now hiding from. Genesis is a book of firsts. First creation, first life, a lot of firsts. Act 2, the fall, is the first entrance of guilt, first entrance of shame, the first entrance of fear, first instance, ironically, of sin. Hiding from the God they once walked with. You know, there are some today, it's a small miracle perhaps for you that you're here because you've been hiding from God for a while, because there's something in your life that you know God doesn't desire and you haven't been willing to put it down. Your walk with God has suffered. Your joy has taken a hit. Your peace is non-existent. You've tried to cover it over. You're not the first. Verse 9 through verse 12. The Lord God called to the man, and he said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. And he said, well, Who told you that you were naked? God knew the answers to all these questions. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, this is classic, the woman whom you gave to be with me, 
she gave me from the tree and I ate. God, 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 it's all, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's all her fault, right? It's all her fault. <laughs> she did this. Shame, guilt, distance, blame, sin. They had everything until this. They lacked nothing until this. Verse 13, And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, Well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. No one taking responsibility for the decision they made, just as we often do ourselves, to step over the boundary that God had drawn and to have sinned. There were two crucial questions in that passage. One is here, verse 13, what's this you've done? God says to Eve, he knew. The other is verse 9. He says to Adam, Adam, where are you? When he said to Adam, where are you? He wasn't asking Adam, where are you geographically? He knew where he was. I mean, it's hard to hide from God. Come on. He knew where Adam was. What he was asking Adam was, Adam, where are you now in relation to me? What has this sin earned you in your life? Where has this sin put you? And what has it cost you? Steve Farrar tells a story in one of his books called Finishing Strong. He tells a story of a little boy, let's call him Timmy, who lived on a farm with his grandparents. And Timmy used to like to shoot a slingshot, you know, just try to, you know, he wasn't very good at it, but he would try to do it. And uh, he, um, one day, I mean, he couldn't hit anything. One day, he actually slung that rock, and it, it hit his grandma's favorite duck on the whole farm grounds and just killed it stone cold dead right there on the spot. Well, Timmy looked around, and he was scared to death. He knew that duck was his grandma's favorite, and so he's trying to decide what to do. So the best thing he knew to do was to go back kind of behind the barn and to just sort of tuck it in behind the wood pile, and hopefully a rodent would find it or, you know, some animal would drag it off, and grandma would never know. Well, what Timmy soon realized was that his sister Sally had seen the whole thing happen, older sister Sally. And so that night when they're at dinner, they're finishing up, Grandma says, Timmy or Sally, why don't you come and help me do these dishes now that dinner's over? And she said, oh, Grandma, Timmy's going to do dishes for me tonight, right, Timmy? And he, she looks at him and whispers, remember the duck? So Timmy says, yeah, Grandma, I'm going to do those dishes for you. The next day, Grandpa comes around. Hey, Timmy, why don't you come on and go fishing with me? Sally says, oh, Grandpa, Timmy's got some chores to do. Right, Timmy? Yeah, Grandpa, I've got some chores to do. And Sally, now having pushed off her chores on her little brother, goes off to fish with Grandpa. After that happened for a couple of weeks, Timmy finally couldn't handle it anymore. He comes to his grandmother and uh, in tears, he says, Grandma, I have a confession to make. Uh, you know, your favorite duck that was killed a couple of weeks ago. I hate to tell you this, but I'm the one who did it. I didn't, I, I, I knew better and I... I didn't know that was going to happen, and I just, I, but it's my fault. It's my responsibility. Just bust into tears crying. <laughs> Grandma says, Timmy, gives him a big old hug, says, Honey, it's okay. I forgive you. And by the way, I saw the whole thing when it happened. I was just wondering how long you were going to let your sister 
hold this over your head. You know, for some of you today, man, you've been a slave for far too long to a sin sin that's going to get you nothing but a lot of heartache. And for some here today, perhaps just based on the sheer size of the number of people that are here, there are some really hard decisions that need to be made to drive a stake in the ground and to say, today, as a follower of Jesus, this sin ends. And to find the truth of 1 John 1, 9 that says when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, just like that grandma, to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And what happens is that the guilt and the shame that the enemy doesn't tell you about ahead of time gets left as we walk on in life because of repentance and because of the price that Jesus paid. So what sin needs to go for you? Maybe God calls your name today and says, where are you today in relation to me? And maybe, just maybe, he calls you out of his grace to turn from that sin and to come home. Maybe for some, he calls you for the first time to lay down that sin that separates you from God, your creator, to say, Lord Jesus, now would you fill me, forgive me, and take over? Let's pray. Heads bowed and eyes closed. God, we thank you that you hear our prayers. God, we thank you that you love us, that you care for us. Lord, the world so often looks at you and your word and just with deception. says, who would want to live a life like that with such constraint? But Lord, it's sin that's the constraint. It's sin that robs life. It's sin that wrecks lives. And Lord, you took the cost of it yourself to set us free and to forgive us. And today, God, I pray for those here this morning that have never made the beautiful discovery of what it means to be in relationship with you. Lord, I pray right where they sit today that they'll make the decision that many others have made, even in this room, to tell you, Lord Jesus, that the best they can, they lay down their sin today and that they would invite you to come in and forgive and to take over to forgive them and to save them and to keep them from this day forward, that they would follow you the best they can. And Lord, for those that are in this room that have already made that decision, God, we all still wrestle with temptation and sin. Not a one of us here is without sin. Every one of us will step out of this place today and before our heads go down, lay down uh, in the bed tonight, we'll have dealt with some form of temptation. But God, thank you that we don't have to be slaves there that we can know that we're forgiven and set free, and God, that we rest in your grace. It doesn't excuse us when we fall short, but Lord, it's that grace that motivates us to live every day for your glory and to tell others of that glory or, or of that grace that's available for them. Lord, it often starts with a decision. Help us to make whatever decision that you're leading us to make today. May we get it right before we leave this place. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.